Welcome to Coffee House. We are going to have limited analysis and discussions of this one because we're going to have two episodes plus two discussion episodes for 12 Rules for Life, an antidote to chaos. I think that's what the subtitle is. But this is Jordan Peterson, and like I said, we've already got part one that goes through rules one through six. Now we've got seven through 12, and we're just going to dive right in. Rule number seven, pursue what is meaningful, not what is expedient. And I'm going to read for you here some passages from the Book of Wisdom, I think it's called. This is Wisdom 2, verses 1 through 3. And it just struck me. This is the RSV, I think, was the translation. But okay, so this is verses uh, 1 through 3. For they reasoned unsoundly, saying to themselves, Short and sorrowful is our life, and there is no remedy when a man comes to his end, and no one has been known to return from Hades. Because we were born by mere chance, and hereafter we shall be as though we had never been, because the breath in our nostrils is smoke, and reason is a spark kindled by the beating of our hearts. When it is extinguished, the body will turn to ashes, and the spirit will dissolve like empty air. That's the end of it. That was beautiful. Come on. Beautiful. The breath in our nostrils is smoke. The body will turn to ashes and the spirit will dissolve like empty air. It's just, it's clean. It's straightforward. It's just, it's some nice writing going on there. And this is verses 6 through 11. Come therefore, let us enjoy the good things that exist and make us of the creation to the full as in youth. Let us take our fill of costly wine and perfumes and let no flower of spring pass by us. Let us crown ourselves with rosebuds before they wither. I'm jumping in here. That is such a beautiful line. Let us crown ourselves with rosebuds before they wither. This is the transient nature of things that seem valuable in life. Ugh, beautiful. Back to the back to the quote. <laughs> let none of us fail to share in our revelry. Everywhere let us leave signs of enjoyment because this is our portion and this is our lot. Let us oppress the righteous poor man. Let us not spare the widow nor regard the gray hairs of the aged. But let our might be our law of right. For what is weak proves itself to be useless. End quote. So uh, that's, it's in a context. That's a quoting of somebody in a context in the Book of Wisdom here. There's some other stuff going on, but I just wanted to read it for the value of, of the literary value of those passages. I loved so many of the little things that, that happened in there. To get on to the actual, the actual contents of rule number seven. And remember, the title of this chapter is Pursue What is Meaningful, Not What is Expedient. And big idea here, we don't understand wisdom. Nobody was forming wisdom traditions explicitly. This is something that accrued over a great deal of time. And something like ritual sacrifice <laughs> is symbolic of the idea of delayed gratification. It's, it's understanding of a wisdom tradition that's acted out before it is articulated. So obviously it's acted out in a destructive way in this case, but it has the, it's the idea of delayed gratification, that you sacrifice something now that's valuable to you for something in the future that's going to be more valuable. To bring this in here, this isn't in the book, but Brett Weinstein was talking to Jordan Peterson recently, and he talked about how the afterlife and the idea of the afterlife was an evolutionary development that's a kind of extreme delayed gratification. It's like the most extreme delayed gratification that you can have because you're getting your reward in the afterlife after the whole life is over. So you can sacrifice everything about your life <laughs> to get to that afterlife of the gratification. Such an interesting idea. So initially, it was about that the strong should dominate the weak. That was the modus operandi of how humans functioned. And then with Christianity, we had a valid argument that even the most slovenly person had rights. So this is kind of the descent idea of individual rights and individual worth. He talks about Nietzsche a little bit here and how the idea of God is dead, you know, the pronouncement that's always associated with Nietzsche. People don't go to the next step of what Nietzsche says about that is that we cannot wash away the blood. We kill them and we cannot wash away the blood. 
And he excoriates Paul at this point. Nietzsche excoriates Paul for removing the responsibility, the moral responsibility from believers, the moral responsibility to imitate Jesus. This idea was watered down with the advent of Protestantism and the justification by faith alone, watered down the idea of mimicking Jesus and Jesus's life in your own life. But the whole idea, the idea of justification by faith was the consequence of the church that was unwilling to put forth what Jesus actually demanded. This is what Nietzsche believed about Christianity. He hated Paul and said the church was the problem here. Then we get a discussion of the brothers Karamazov. You know, obviously Jordan Peterson loves Dostoevsky. But when Dostoevsky and the brothers Karamazov talks about Christianity, he has a character who's an atheist who argues against all the points in Christianity in a very deft, and I think I remember this when I was reading one of his books, that the atheist was, you'd think it would be kind of a caricature of an atheist, but this atheist was very capable and really attacking Christianity and doing it in a very effective way. But the character in the book didn't just, like, leave Christianity aside, and it wasn't seen as some kind of moral failing that he didn't leave it aside. But the point is that Dostoevsky did not shirk from the reality of the, ta the attacks against Christianity, and it was still maintained somehow. But Peterson here points out that we can't invent our own values and that we have a nature. I have a nature and we have to be aware of that. We have to discover it and contend with it and become aware of our own insufficiency. These are prerequisites for being able to develop and advance in the way that we need to. And here this uh, very simple pronouncement, don't lie about anything ever. <laughs> Just straightforward. And we have a bit of a dichotomy here that's established. If, if working toward ennobling of being and establishment of paradise, then it's Christ. If working for destruction of being and unnecessary suffering, it's Satan. To have meaning is better than to have what you want. You don't even know what you want. And I think this has played out so many times in my observation when I've been watching other people is that people don't know what they want and they chase the thing that they think they want. But having meaning is much better than having what you quote unquote want. And this, this here, meaning is organization into a symphony of being. So it's the organization of everything that you are into a symphony of going towards something together. And that's where you get the meaning, and that's why it feels so great. <laughs> so rule number eight, that was rule seven. This is rule eight, tell the truth or at least don't lie. Should be straightforward. Untruth can produce unintended consequences. And I think this was something that kind of profoundly stuck in my brain. Because obviously we would love to be able to control all of the tendrils of whatever mistruth we put out there. But it absolutely can produce unintended consequences. And he relates his story about this landlord that he had and how he would come drunk to the house and uh, ask them or try to sell them stuff so he could get money to go drink or something like that. And at that moment, he decided to be completely honest with this landlord and tell him that he was scaring his wife, that he didn't want to buy anything and that he needed to stop getting drunk and showing up at their door like this. And then they had a good relationship after that and the guy stopped doing it. And there are these lies that we tell ourselves and that we tell other people. So lies like the current knowledge is sufficient to define what is good and unquestionably the lie that our current knowledge is sufficient to define what is good unquestionably and into the distant future. I mean, this is something that people do all the time when it comes to talking to other people, when it comes to politics especially. And this idea that all I know is all that needs to be known. And I've even, despite my incredible stature, I've even been subject to this as well, is where in some areas I would feel like, okay, I, I have the information that I need in that particular area. I don't need to learn any more about that, but really I'm just being lazy and deciding that, you know, I'm going to give myself an out, a rationalization, so that I don't have to put more work into it. 
but reality cannot be improved by falsification. And the Gulag Archipelago, of course, of course, Solzhenitsyn comes up over and over again. In that book, he discussed the daily denial by Soviet citizens of the experience in the Soviet Union, what was happening around them, the daily denial. It's deceit that makes people miserable beyond what they can bear. So you have this, this progression that he lays out here about lying, where you have the little lie, you have the little lie that's the seed of it, and then you have to use several other lies to kind of prop up the little lie. And then you have to use distorted thinking internally to avoid the shame that comes with having lied. Then you need a few more lies to cover up the distorted thinking, and then the distorted thinking becomes unconscious and supported neurologically, and this is where things fall apart. He uses this phrase a few times and then actually quotes the poem later, The Second Coming, things fall apart, the center cannot hold. So you have this progression of the way that lying works and why we need to avoid it. Again, here at the end, he talks about your personal truth, but just as I would criticize anybody else who wanted to use that particular language, Peterson uses it in a different way. He's a clinical psychologist, so he's using it in such a way that you have to mine yourself for the reality of who you are. So that's what your personal truth is. And I think he would even go, because he talked about it at some point, I remember his conversation with Sam Harris, who I'm not a big fan of anymore, <laughs> and his conversation during that, he talked about how reality is kind of dependent on what is useful in our evolutionary history and I understand what he's saying now at the time I didn't really so he might take it a little farther when it comes to your personal truth and having that be some kind of a significant point to what reality is but I mean that's a whole nother thing we'd have to unpack very carefully just to say that uh, pure subjectivity is of grave concern when it comes to trying to come to what's true, but then we have to dig down and nail down what true would actually mean in this context so anyway we're going to go on to rule nine <laughs> rather than diving more into that one. So rule nine, assume that the person you are listening to knows something you don't. So many of these are so obviously useful and great and true and things that we should be doing, but so difficult and so often things that we just would almost never do. I'm going to try to implement them all over the place when I'm interacting with other primates, but I, I'm not sure how well I'm going to do it. I will report back. But assume that the person you are listening to knows something you don't. One idea out of here, memory is not objective, memory is a tool. So when you're trying to remember something, you're not just trying to piece together the objective reality of what has been recorded in your brain. You are using it in such a way to create some kind of meaning out of it. You're using memory as a tool as opposed to just some clean, unfettered thing back there that you can reference. And he used this as a, a way to talk about clinical methods. So Freud specifically had a rule that there was no imprinting. That's where you get the idea of the psychologist sitting behind somebody who is looking in the other direction. So you, you can't see each other, can't face each other. And Freud would not want to imprint at all on the person who's being analyzed. But Peterson's method is conversational. So this uh, he references Carl Rogers here about listening and honesty. So he says the therapist needs to tell the truth. And that's the important thing. It's not imprinting as long as you're telling the truth about what's going on here or any imprinting that might occur is kind of collateral to and not as important as the therapist being able to tell the truth to the patient. Here's a good rule for dispute. Each can speak for himself only after they have stated the other person's position accurately and to that person's satisfaction. So you leave it up to them <laughs> to say whether that was a good representation of their position. Obviously, again, another just brilliant, wonderful thing that would be great if everybody did, but would be virtually impossible for people to do. And of course I say that. Why should I be so cynical about it? I'm sure if we made sure, if you know everybody listening to this, <laughs> if we could get other people to do it, if we made sure that 
people did this, restated their opponent's position to the satisfaction of their opponent, I'm sure it would benefit everybody to nth degree. But it would mean that you're not misrepresenting what they say, which is, of course, a kind of distortion that happens constantly when it comes to these kinds of debates. And you would have a stronger opponent, which is better for everybody, again, because you have better competition, so you have a better ability to try to figure out what's true. And listening types. So there are different ways to listen to somebody. You could be listening just to be able to, or be in a conversation, just to be able to show dominance, to jockey for position, to show your rightness. That's the only point that you're in it, to show how right you are. And there's this little uh, funny thing thing how uh, men are accused of wanting to fix things immediately when they get into a conversation and then women are accused of just wanting to talk about their feelings kind of in a general broad way that doesn't really help getting anywhere but i think peterson is really on point here when he talks about how women and the men that they're talking to likely don't sufficiently understand the problem when you are initially talking about it and the strategy that women might be using in this situation is to specifically talk about the problem sufficiently to get to an understanding of it before they realize that there's something that needs to be fixed explicitly. So this is something that I'm going to try to remember <laughs> and try to implement. Again, there are a lot of things that we're trying to remember now to be better people. But now moving on to rule 10, be precise in your speech. Our brains transform the world from things into useful things and things that get in the way. So remember we talked about, I think in the last time, it's meaning first. It's not objective truth first. We attribute meaning to things right away. We don't see valueless entities and then attribute meaning to them. And if we didn't have these all these cognitive filtering mechanisms, we would absolutely drown in the complexity of the world. He relates this story. There is no dra there is no dragon. It's a children's story wherein there's a dragon that just keeps growing in this house and they keep denying it. You know, the parents are in denial and the kid's saying, it's right there, it's right there. And it's supposed to be metaphorical for the kinds of conflicts that arise between a married couple and that can grow and grow and grow over time if you don't pay attention to them and address them. And he specifically says that there's little in marriage that is so little it should not be argued about. So again, precision in your language. Make sure you're talking properly about these things. And of course, since we attribute meaning to everything, one of the things that he points out is that, you know, you hear the rustling in the bush. It might be a tiger, it could be a squirrel, or it could be a dragon. So you have to be precise in your language in that arguments descend into every problem ever. So you have to narrow it down and figure out what it actually is. Rule number 11, do not bother children when they are skateboarding. This was one of the first things that I saw when I was starting to go out after the COVID had waned a little bit and there was some reopening. One of the first things that made me happy was seeing kids being little hooligans out there on their skateboards. <laughs> so he specifically says here, do not bother children when skateboarding. So the point is to optimize risk, not minimize risk. And that's a very important distinction that I think is lost on a lot of people is that children should be optimizing their risks. So they should be taking risks, but it should be optimized in such a way that they get the most benefit with the least amount of threat to them. And then he goes into a talk about uh, men and women and the differences there, such as uh, women being more agreeable, wanting to avoid conflict more. And we've talked about a number of these things. I think they came up either in the last one or another book that we talked about. But wanting to avoid conflict, the fact that Scandinavian countries have done the most for creating an egalitarian society and it shows the greatest distinction between men and women. Which is unexpected. You know, if men and women are blank slates and they're just imprinted upon by their society, then the most egalitarian society should create the most equal men and women. But that's not what happens. 
it's a boys like competition and there's a, a real difference between the way that boys and girls treat competition so it's admirable for a girl to beat a boy but it's acceptable for a girl to lose and of course these are generalizations about psychology here and how they they work but for the most part as Peterson points out these are very well supported in the literature so it's bad for a boy to beat a girl but it, and it's bad to lose so the competition that a boy would have with a girl doesn't have a benefit for the boy so boys can only win in a boy hierarchy and that so much of this little chunk of idea here could potentially explain everything that we're going through <laughs> at this point as a society uh, but the question is are universities now a girls game it's not somewhere where boys can compete against boys anymore 80% of non-stem fields are filled with females and when women reach their 30s and get into their 30s the, the highest end performers when it comes to women are much more likely to bail out of high-end firms rather than go in there and get partner status and work 80-hour weeks and all that sort of thing. And of course, women marry up. This is well-supported as well. Women marry up. Men marry across or down. Men don't care one way or the other. But women tend to marry up. They want men who are higher achieving than they are. And marriage, curiously, is now increasingly reserved for the rich. You know, it's something that has fallen out of favor, especially recently, but it's something that the rich are doing at a disproportionately high level. And fatherlessness, of course, we've talked about before, really bad for children. Children four times more likely to be poor, more likely to abuse drugs and alcohol, twice as likely to commit suicide. And there are whole disciplines against men in universities. Big, big, big deal here. Any hierarchy creates winners and losers. And this is kind of such an important thing to nail down. So any pursuit of a valued goal creates a hierarchy. And some will be better than others within that hierarchy that is trying to achieve a valued goal. Equity, the kind of equity that our vice president espoused right before the election, and that so much, uh, so many on the progressive left espouse, would require the destruction of value and meaning. We would have to get rid of the values to be able to implement equity. Because again, if you have a goal, then there is necessarily going to be a hierarchy to reach that goal. There are going to be better and worse ways to get there and better and worse people to do it. So, and one thing that Peterson has emphasized on many an occasion is that throughout history, it wasn't a patriarchy that was just imposing upon women. It was men and women working together the best way that they could to free each other from the struggle of life. But now, of course, we have this ideological shift where we see even things like science as just a game of power as opposed to a method for determining what's true or what's useful. But group identity, because everything is being broken up into group identity, it can all be fractionated all the way down to the individual. And the group membership cannot capture the variability within the individuals. There's a study here that he talks about which kind of attacks some of my understanding of the way IQ works, but he says that one standard deviation IQ has been observed in twins who went to different families, but you needed three standard deviations in wealth. So you needed one twin to be with a family that's poorer than 85% of the population and one family to be richer than 95% of the population. So you need a huge gulf between them to be able to move one standard deviation. But a standard deviation is a pretty big jump. So I didn't read the specific studies directly, but I trust that that's what they came out with. And that's a really interesting development. But again, that was a huge gulf to be able to get that, that much movement within the IQ. 
And of course, there are a million things that likely go into it anyway. So today we are being brainwashed. I don't know if you realize this. So in schools and with a lot of parents, boys are being socialized to, to act like girls, to be more like girls. But something like aggression, and this is something that Peterson points out, and I think this is a bigger, broader idea that we need to think about more carefully, is that all of the natural inc inclinations that people have need to be sublimated into more sophisticated pursuits. And this is what he says here. So something like aggression in boys, it's not something that's merely learned as they grow up. A healthy boy will learn to integrate their aggressive tendencies into more sophisticated behavioral routines. So these are things like competitive nature and being more determined to accomplish something. But on the other side, we have problems like people being overly compassionate. They require assertiveness training. And this is more often for women. They try to avoid conflict. They become resentful and say things like, if they love me, they would know what to do. And that is actually the voice of resentment. I remember that coming up many a time in my <laughs> last serious relationship. If they love me, they would know what to do instead of me having to tell them what to do. And then we have this idea of the Oedipal mother, of the mother who will do everything for you. You'll be weak and incompetent, but you'll have everything done for you. And this is the kind of archetype that is developing more nowadays. And then we have this great matriarchy myth, the primordial matriarchy thing that we had encountered before. He references Eric Neumann and Jung. And Eric Neumann, I got his book, but it is so long. It is, it's about the, the mother stereotype or, or the mother archetype. And it's really long. So I'm going to read it at some point, but uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it, but it's really long. So... He references Tiamat in the Enuma Elish, the mother of all things and the representation of chaos, and how consciousness is symbolically masculine. It always has been. So Sleeping Beauty. I love that these Disney movies, it's no wonder they had so much power historically and over such a long period of time. But so Sleeping Beauty was specifically, it wasn't necessarily a man came and saved her. It was Sleeping Beauty being awoken by her masculine side. Mascul masculinity again, or consciousness, has been associated symbolically with masculinity historically. But men in general less agreeable and less susceptible to anxiety and emotional pain. And the differences aren't small. So that's why this has to come up. But even in, in The Little Mermaid, Ariel, you know, she was independent. And one of the things that she suffered was that she had no logo. She didn't have any words. And she was going to be required to remain underwater forever and unconscious. And she was saved by Eric or her masculine side and she has to form a relationship with this masculine side to be able to be conscious and the consciousness is necessary to fend off the cruel world so you know something bad happens you have that awareness now the arrival of your consciousness or the realization of your consciousness and now you can confront the world the scary world out there because you have that and you're not afraid of it anymore Okay, rule number 12, pet a cat when you see one on the street. <laughs> Life is suffering. He recounted his daughter's joint issues, which was a horrible and harrowing sounding situation. I didn't know how deep it went, but it was just so sad to hear her, how engaged she was in all these physical activities and how much she loved them, and how just these sudden and systematic joint issues would completely destroy her ability to do this stuff. The poor kid had to go through this for years and years and years, and the poor family had to go through this. Pet a cat, make it worth it. Make the whole life thing worth it. And then there's a kind of epilogue called the coda, and I get more great stuff in here. When it comes to your relationships, you must decide whether you want to be right or want to have peace. <laughs> and I think that is going to stick with me forever. <laughs> you must negotiate. You must want an answer that works for both parties more than you want to be right. 
And one of the things he suggested is say something you did wrong and apologize for it and let your partner do the same thing. And that will help tremendously in being able to come to a solution. And then he had this pen of light. The idea was that a pen of light that you can write onto your soul or onto your heart. And so what things would you write if you could? And some of the things that he wrote, aim continually at heaven. And he asked himself the question, what shall I do with my wife? And he answered, treat her as the holy mother of God so that she might give birth to the redeemer. I mean, that's a hell of a standard to hold for your wife, to hold for yourself, to, to be the means by which you determine how to treat your wife. That's a hell of a standard. It's truly better to give than receive, and your sins make things worse than they have to be. So that was just chock full of so much amazing stuff. We don't have to do too much analysis here. Obviously, I liked it. Obviously, I liked the book a lot. It mixed methods of communication. We've talked about archetypal versus empirical communication, and so much is so resonant and important. So many good ideas. It's one of those foundational texts that I think men are going to have to read and women going forward, but especially men, especially right now, to be as great as one can be. So big picture wise, I think the fundamental idea that people need to take right now that is going to be the deciding point of our civilization is the differences between men and women. The world doesn't mold itself to our feelings, and we have to realize that. We would like to think for our own personal ego and feelings that everybody's just born the same and it's just circumstance that makes people better at one thing or another than other people. But there's a reality that's going to slap us in the face if we try to pretend that that's the case. Anyway, this is Coffee House. I really, really appreciate you listening. There are links in the description if you want to support this thing in any way. But otherwise, I will see you on the next one. All right, bye.